Hey, Ginny. Hey, welcome back to Hell Week. Yeah, exactly. Welcome back to Hell. Hey, you know what's funny? I noticed in my planner, if anyone 100 years from now <laughs> reads the things I've been writing these past few weeks, they're going to be so confused. I, I had written a few weeks ago, do genocide. <laughs> and then recently it's been prep hell. Wow, there is clearly some sort of evil master. There's an evil mastermind who was yes. running around that history passed her by, I guess. Exactly, right next to groceries and, you know, get the yeah, oil changed. Yeah. Look, you're, you know? you're a mom, okay? Uh, you have to do it all. I do have to do it all, including <laughs> destroy the world. Today in our health series, our topic is systemizing judgments. And what that means is we are exploring the ways people from different cultures, worldviews, and religions organize thought around topics like evil, punishment, correction, and justice. So it's a little different from our usual format of diving into a Bible passage. But I think understanding that people around the world think quite differently about these topics than many of us have been taught under evangelical Christianity is hugely important, especially when it comes to deconstructing the idea of hell. Um, because a lot of us are taught that the fact that we are sinners who deserve hell is obvious to every single human being. And the reality is that's just not the case. So to start off with, from an atheist or naturalistic mindset, how would we systemize judgment? So under this worldview, is there actually objective evil? I am a trained Christian apologist, and I know that apologists will sometimes try to nap people here with what's called the moral argument. And they do it by asking the atheist if objective evil exists. They expect an atheist to say, of course, there are some things that are just objectively evil. Then the Christians can argue, well, for anything to be objectively good or evil, it has to depend on a reality outside of the human mind. Otherwise, it's just your opinion, whether or not something is really good or evil. And if humans differ on opinion, then nobody's opinion is more valid than another person's. And if it's just your opinion, you can't really say things like the Holocaust or rape or child abuse are actually objectively evil. So I used to be really compelled by this argument in my undergrad, but I remember doing a unit on this in my master's degree program, and I presented an atheistic argument in a forum without using any sources really except my strong skeptical side, and I was really hoping the professor would explain holes in my case. Um, at the time, I was not fully in deconstruction, so there was definitely some, some fear there, um, but he didn't. He just really said, wow, that sums up the atheist argument really well, um, which disappointed me. And I don't know if it was because of lack of time to get into it with me or because of a lack of response or what, but I'm going to share some of that argument that I proposed in the forum. And I, I just want to say, this is not how every naturalist or, or atheist would go about talking about evil. Um, but I do think that this is something worth mentioning because Christians will often take out the concept of evolution entirely and I do think it comes into play here. So basically if you are a naturalist who believes the physical world is all that exists and you hold to evolution then it makes sense that nearly all humans grasp a general unified sense of right and wrong and it makes sense that we put laws and boundaries into place to keep people from doing wrong behavior because overall it betters our species. It furthers our chances of survival. 
Now, under this train of thought, can we say there's objective good or evil? No, not exactly. Not in the same way that Christians can. But as a species, we sort of can. So if you think about it this way, if you have a bug colony, an insect colony outside of your house, and you realize that they are committing bug genocide, you know, we don't usually go to the thought, wow, there's something objectively evil happening out there. We usually think that's unhealthy for that colony or something in the environment isn't right because that's abnormal behavior, but we don't think of it in terms of objective evil or good because it's part of nature. So under this atheist mindset, if we are just part of nature, then in the same way, no, our actions are not objectively good or evil, but as a part of this species, we have to take the concepts of good and evil quite seriously. And they are guiding principles that are put in us by evolutionary means, which are important to regulate. So under this train of thought, human justice systems, where peers judge and execute judgment, are effective ways to control behavior and better the survival of the species as a whole. There is no concern about the afterlife. Judgment is something we create and execute now during our time on Earth. So that's the Liz version of how an atheist or naturalist might approach this topic. And I do think it has some compelling points. It does create room for confusion when humans do not agree on what good and evil are since there is no higher authority to appeal to other than the majority's opinion in many cases. But I do think that this theory is worth noting because a lot of us have not been taught to think that way at all coming up under an evangelical mindset. So moving into the world of religions, Jenny, you're going to give us a brief overview of a few of them. So why don't you start us off with what Muslims think when it comes to evil and justice and hell? So to start off, Islam, it's still in the Abrahamic tradition, actually. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's pretty similar to what we're familiar with as far as their concept of hell. Muslims also believe, like Christians, that people have immortal souls. Um, and after death, the destination of the souls depends on the person's good and bad deeds. Islam teaches that everyone will be resurrected and face a final judgment. People who are faithful and good will enter paradise, and people who are unfaithful and wicked will enter hell. Okay. So that's not too much of a, a, of a difference. So here, here's a religion that I actually hadn't heard of. I think it's pronounced Buhai. Okay. Or like Bihai. Have you heard of this? No, but I think I've read this. And you and I this season, behind the scenes, I know. both know. We're constantly stopping and saying, hey, is that how you pronounce this? <laughs> but yeah. it's spelled, we can spell it. It's B-A-H-A apostrophe I. Yes. So. Yes. And that faith teaches that at death, the, the body dies, but the immortal, rational soul continues on in the spiritual realm, and it grows toward perfection. Hmm. So the prayers of people still on earth and the good deeds done in the name of the person who died can help the soul make progress in the next world. And so there's no hell or no punishment, but they're still growing toward whatever their version of perfection looks like. And okay. this faith is also inclusive of kind of the truth of all religions. And so it doesn't really, you know, it's not like if you don't believe this certain thing, you can't work toward perfection or anything like that. So there's really no like actual idea of a heaven or hell 
in the same way. Mm-hmm. Next uh, that I have is Buddhism. And there are several types of Buddhism. And they can have distinct teachings about the afterlife. But generally, Buddhism teaches that the eternal individual souls do not exist. But after death, people usually experience reincarnation based on their actions and desires in this life. So the goal, if you're a Buddhist, is to end the cycle of reincarnation to reach an enlightened state called nirvana. It's definitely very different than the Christian, you know, goal. Yes. Of kind yes. of ultimate, almost the opposite, really, because our idea of heaven is sort of the idea of ultimate fulfillment. Ultimate fulfillment, one- everlasting existence, whereas mm-hmm. that's the opposite you're working toward being nothing. In a sense, yeah. In a sense. It's, it's so, it's very fascinating, actually. The next religion um, is Hinduism. Reincarnation also is very important in Hinduism. And it also it encompasses a wide variety of beliefs and practices. But the core belief is that when you die, your eternal immortal soul is reincarnated based on your actions in life. They would refer to this as karma. And the consequences of karma are automatic and you can't avoid them. So it's, I think we're all kind of familiar with if you put good into the world, you'll get good back. If you put bad things into the world, you get bad in return. So a person may suffer in one life for bad karma from the current life or a previous life. So that's kind of interesting. So it's like you're in the past life, you really were a bad person. Maybe just a lot of bad things are happening to you in this life. Mm. So reincarnation and then the ultimate goal is to... Uh, become free of reincarnation so you can stop being reincarnated by eliminating the bad karma through good actions meditation spiritual devotion and the freedom from ignorance or desire which again it's like that kind of disconnect from passions or desire or uh want i guess so sikhism sikhism emphasizes both living a good life in community and meditating on god Sikhs believe a person experiences reincarnation until they resolve all of their karma and attain mukti or liberation. Hmm. This happens when one focuses their attention on God instead of self and attains a full understanding of God. Uh, So again, reincarnation, there's no real punishment for not being good. It's just you have to keep reincarnating until you get it right. Uh, I also find it interesting that this, like they reach their liberation or completion when they attain a full understanding of God because if you're coming at it from a Christian perspective, like you'll never understand God because Mm. God is so much bigger than we are. So that's just another difference. So next is the Shinto religion. Shinto is a Japanese religion. It includes a number of different beliefs and practices, but does not even really emphasize the afterlife. Death is seen as impure in the Shinto religion and the focus is on this life and not the next. And most Shintoists don't necessarily even believe in an eternal soul but they do believe that people can become kami or sacred spirits who can protect their descendants so that's one of the reasons people will worship their ancestors and many shintoists practice both shinto and buddhism and view death in a more buddhist sense so that almost reminds me of judaism and how there are so many different views you can take on what happens after death Mm. and it's really more about living in the present in this world than on what happens to you in the next. Okay. Now, uh, Taoism, this is where you'll see like the, the, like the black and white circle, you know, where you have 
You know what I'm talking about? Are you talking about yin and yang? That's what yes, I'm yes, yes. That's what I'm thinking okay, of. Okay, okay. That's what I'm trying to say. So that's Taoism. It's also known as Taoism, and okay. it teaches that the Tao, the fundament, is the fundamental energy of life. And in general, Taoists seek to achieve immortality through rituals and pursuing harmony and oneness with the universe. Mm-hmm. So they have a concept of immortality, but. It's not so, there's really no punishment aspect to it. It's just, can we become one with the universe? And the last religion I have to go over is Unitarian Universalism. Unitarianism does not have a core set of beliefs and does not promote universal truth. It emphasizes tolerance and rational thought. Unitarians may not believe in God or the supernatural, and it focuses on this life. Some Unitarians believe that people cease to exist after death, while others believe there is some sort of afterlife or unification with God or the universe. Unitarians do not believe in hell or eternal punishment. Universalism refers to the belief in a universal salvation. I actually went to a universal Unitarian church when I was a kid, just just a few times. My aunt attended a universalist church, and we went when my parents were kind of trying to figure out where they wanted to go. Uh, we went a few times, and... That church, from what I remember as a very young child, it really just kind of seemed like a normal Christian church to me. But okay. this I was is very really, I'm very curious about them. I might have to look it up because I remember um, being in a couple Unitarian churches for oh, okay. like perf- for performances. Like they were oh, rented okay. spaces, so it wasn't a service or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that my mom was very much like this this is a date like a, not like yeah. a dangerous place but like these are not christians elizabeth yeah and i as you were talking it makes me wonder what unites them and what um i don't know i i just the idea that people that still almost reject religion potentially still find this need to be religious in a way or spirit i don't know like i i would have to attend to see i do kind of wonder if it's almost more like a community that's more of yeah. the focus than on a specific thing because they don't believe in universal truth. So you probably could believe kind of whatever you wanted and still be part of a group, though. And there is yeah. benefit to that, actually. Yeah. I never really thought of it that way till you were reading. And I was thinking, oh, wow, there's a lot of people that I've seen you know, wanting a group to deconstruct with or wanting a group to kind of seek out things with. And I don't know what those services are like at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but that sounds maybe like what they were kind of doing. I don't know, though, because there's no emphasis on universal truth. So maybe they don't think it's even possible to find something true. I don't know. It probably varies from person to person. It'd be yeah. interesting to learn more. So let's bring it a little closer to home to most of our current situation and our involvement or affiliation with Christianity. And let's talk about Judaism and how they perceived judgment. To jump in, we're going back to the Jewish understanding of the afterlife. And different sects of Judaism have believed different things at different times. So as we talked about in our first episode, ancient Jews thought Uh, about Sheol, which is a place that all people, Jews and Gentiles, righteous and unrighteous, they all go to Sheol. During the second century BCE, during Second Temple Judaism, Jews began to believe that the dead would rise again at the end of days. And so this was something that I kind of always got tripped up on 
the Jewish understanding of the dead would rise again. And so I'm kind of spelling it out slowly for myself again here. Um, it's a key difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So I don't know, when you were younger, did anyone ever tell you like the way to remember the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is that the Sadducees were sad because they didn't believe in life mm-hmm. and life after death. Did you yeah. do that? Okay. I've heard yes. that. I didn't hear that till I was older, but they, I remember thinking, they don't think the dead rise. They're sad. They're sad, They're you, sad see? you see? <laughs> yes. Okay. But more than just that, the Sadducees were a prominent priestly class, and they ran the temple. They And they, uh, he said, they did not believe in the afterlife, and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees, they're the elite experts in Jewish law. So they had different roles. They weren't priests in the same way. They didn't run the temple. But they did believe in an afterlife. And they believed in the resurrection of the dead. And so these were two were very much pitted against each other in their in their beliefs. Mm, it's kind of like Christianity in a sense of people. You know, I always got them confused. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I find when you're, it's like if you're close in belief, but just different enough, it's like you are the most pitted it's against the worst. each other. Yes. Which is so yes. interesting. I will also say I recently did a post on my Instagram mm-hmm referencing the pharisees as the religious elite yeah. and a rabbi came and said that was incorrect oh. phrasing i'm not sure what the correct phrasing is okay because i and i i kind of explained in my comments like well when i think of religious elite i think of people who are most you know who do know the scriptures the best or who have spent the most time studying mm-hmm. and spent basically who spend the most time carry the most authority at least in the people's minds right. so i'm curious to read his book and see why he doesn't think that's a correct phrasing yeah as but, a rabbi um, I, i'm sure his exactly definition, yeah but i think it's indisputable that they were experts in jewish law yes that's um that's so, what they studied that yes and it's interesting that they believed in the afterlife yes. and resurrection of the dead because you know in the gospels the pharisees are really the ones who go after jesus i don't know that's an interesting connection it is yeah so so the Sadducees don't really see them as much because once the temple was destroyed in 70 CE, which we also referenced in our last episode, the Sadducees and their theology were really lost. And so the view of the Pharisees became the dominant uh, belief in mainstream biblical Judaism. It's really fascinating to me that the Sadducees did not believe there was an afterlife and held so firmly mm-hmm. to these rules and these, you know, the law. Right. Um they must have really believed God had an impact on their day-to-day And I think they do. Life. And you see this throughout Judaism and even now how Orthodox Jews, God and how they relate to him is so just interwoven into their daily life. Like everything yeah. and the the, yeah. the different seasons and the different things they celebrate. And like, you know, if you buy a new pot, it has to be washed at the, oh goodness, what's the word? Mik- mikvah? That's for women. Maybe I'm not sure if that's for. I don't know. You know more than me. <laughs> I do that. It has to be like ritually purified before you use it, and like separating the dairy mm-hmm. from the meat. You know, like all these things. Every day, everything you do is related to make you think back to God. So I think part of Judaism, a big part of it, is relating to God here in this life and not worrying so much about the yeah. next. So in that sense, I can see why the Sadducees would think that way. And it's a criticism of Christianity now. Uh, that we are so focused on the future. Mm-hmm. I've heard this more than once. You're so focused on the future and heaven that you miss life now. So yeah, that's kind of, interesting. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. The kingdom is here now also. 
and that mm, it should direct yes. how we live. Exactly. Yes, so just going back, talking about the afterlife and the Jewish conception of the afterlife. So in the Talmud, they are told that all but the most wicked are sent to Gehenna, which I wonder if is a reference to like Gehenna, but maybe spelled a little bit differently. Um, but their stay in the flames is temporary. So after being purged of their sins, they are ushered into heaven by Abraham. Elsewhere, also in the Talmud, the torments of hell are said to be temporary for most sinners, but instead of ending in heaven, they end in non-existence. So those are two different takes. Moving to the Middle Ages, the idea of reincarnation was accepted by certain mystical expressions of Judaism, which I didn't realize. I knew now that some sects of Judaism believed in reincarnation, but I didn't realize it started back in the Middle Ages, which I found really interesting. There's a long history of that. That's wild mm-hmm. to me. I did not know any sects of Judaism would hold to the idea of reincarnation. Yeah. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And there's no set Jewish view of the afterlife. If you ask, like, there's like some like kind of like joke, because like where you ask 10 Jews, uh, what do they think of the afterlife? You'll get 11 different answers is kind of one of the things I saw. Mm-hmm. And I think, it, I mean, there's yeah. truth to that. Uh, some believe there's absolutely nothing yeah. after death. Others believe in a version of heaven. Some people believe that there is something after death, but they're agnostic about what it is. Um, I think most of them, they don't really have like a, a Christian view of hell though. Like they don't really believe in hell. Mm. So I think some, some believe that everyone will kind of will end up in some form of heaven or you'll just be nothing again. Like, but you can be Jewish and hold all these different things, even reincarnation. And yeah, there's not a set thing and it's very diverse. So I just found that very interesting that you can be Jewish yeah, and have so diametrically opposing views. Yeah, that is fascinating. So moving along in our historical timeline, out of Judaism springs Christianity. And so could you tell us a little bit about what the early church thought about judgment, especially concerning the idea of hell? Yes, this was, I think, maybe one of my favorite things that I've researched so far. It's very fascinating. Would it surprise you if I told you that the early church fathers seemed to believe in eternal torment, annihilationism, and universal reconciliation. It's like... <laughs> that does surprise me. <laughs> I definitely thought it'd be infernal. Yes, honestly. yes. Well, honestly. if you do just a quick Google and you come up to a lot of, you know, sites, they may say, well, this is always what the early church believed. And they're partially right. But there were so many different beliefs about the nature of hell. Mm. And I was so surprised. And I also thought it was interesting. It wasn't like 1% of the early fathers wrote about annihilationism and 1% wrote about Mm. universal (laughs) reconciliation and 98% were very much about eternal torment. Mm. Because then you're like, okay, so there are a few outliers, but really you can just trace it all the way back. It wasn't that way. It seems more like a a much more evenly mixed bag. Yes, that was what I was like, oh, it's it's not simple at all. I also think it's worth noting that multiple theologians, very revered church fathers, had these differing views, but it didn't seem to be so much of a priority. It didn't seem to cause a major controversy in the early church because the early creeds did not address the nature of hell. So when Christians had to come together and say, what do we believe? And we have to get rid of these heresies. Hell wasn't one of them. And I think that was very interesting. Interesting. So I wonder if it's a little bit more like the Jewish view, which a lot of the early Christians were Jewish, of course. This idea that there are a lot of different views. Even when you're reading the, the New Testament, you can pull from verses that seem to support different things, as we just talked about. 
And a lot of the early church fathers had different views and they would hold them and also hold to what they believed was an Orthodox Christian faith. By Orthodox, I mean traditional, right thinking, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So there were kind of six main theological schools and four of them taught that all men would eventually be rescued from hell. And these were the theological schools at Alexandria, Antioch, Caesarea, and Edessa. And then one school, Ephesus, taught annihilationism that sinners are totally incarcerated into nothingness in hell. And then one theological school, uh, the one in Rome and Carthage, taught eternal punishment mm. in the beginning. Interesting. Okay. And so that you can reference in the show notes, there were two main uh, websites that I drew a lot of this information from. They had really aggregated a lot and went into much more detail. Uh, but because these views were so commonly held throughout the early church, I've gathered a few quotes from some of the most recognizable church fathers that show different beliefs in these three schools and we're actually going to have jenny read some of these at the end of our episode they take a little bit of time to get through so we're saving it till the end but if you're interested in specific quotes from early church fathers on different views of hell stick around after the outro music so that kind of gives us a summary. And again, there's so much more. Uh, people could dedicate, you know, their academic career to just studying this and these questions. Yeah. So this is a very broad overview, tip of the iceberg. Uh, I'll conclude this section just by saying I found it very interesting that many of the sources I read that really tried to prove the eternal torment version of hell or try to prove that the church fathers believe that. They would often mm-hmm. include quotes that reference some version of like eternal fire which to me does not really seem to imply that souls will be tormented forever. It's just that the fire is everlasting. Mm. And so it's like, oh, like maybe a half of these or, or a third of these quotes that this person is using to claim that the early church followers believed in infernalism talk about eternal fire. And of course, like as I showed, there are many quotes that make it very clear what they believe. But other times, they're just talking about fire being everlasting. Yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah, I just that's I found that I found that very interesting. So moving ahead in history, we're going to talk about how Christians have organized thoughts around hell and judgment after the church fathers sort of earlier understanding of it. So many of us who grew up in the evangelical tradition may be familiar with some of these trains of thought, but we may not know all the history behind it and why we were taught the things we were about hell. And it's important to keep in mind that over history, people have worked and reworked theories about what this might be like, you know? They've tried to kind of work out the mechanics of hell and judgment. Mm -hmm. I think it's undeniable to say there are definitely tones of judgment in the bible no matter you know where you end up landing on your thoughts on what hell is or isn't or you know there's still this tone of judgment that shows up in different passages and so over the centuries different people have have thought about it different ways and we're going to get into it a little bit because i think especially this first few I'll bring up, well, the, the Augustinian view, I was really mm-hmm. under the assumption that's just how it is. That's just how the, the that's just what the Bible says. And right. it's just, I've kind of gone through a little, uh, another miniature deconstruction just doing these episodes because I had yeah. this anger that I wasn't taught, here's a view, here's why we believe this is the correct view. Mm-hmm. 
even that would have been enough. Like the churches, I understand not wanting to promote or get into other views in your church. Sure. But I just feel kind of ripped off <laughs> that it was never, it was taught like clearly the Bible says this. And it's like, well, this is how Augustine systemized the same information. And he may be right. But there are also many people who have done the same thing with the same verses and kind of landed in slightly different or very different places. And I just kind of wish that was addressed a little bit more. <laughs> Maybe you knew this before me. I think I thought I knew this, but during our mm-hmm. episodes, I have just been hit anew with how much has been taught to me as clearly evident. And I'm like, I don't think it was as clearly evident as I thought. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm not... so. Especially, I, I'm not trying to throw any particular denomination under the bus, but just kind of from how I experienced a lot of like Baptist churches and how they would explain things. It's, it's very much like this is the word of God and this is what it means. And there is never any discussion of, I'm sure this happens in other spheres uh, of Baptist theology. Uh, I'm not saying that, but just like from someone sitting in the pews, you never hear okay, how did the Bible come together? This compilation of books, how do we understand the Bible? Who spoke into these things? Like this Augustinian viewpoint, well, who was Augustine? What's his story? Mm -hmm. What were some good and bad things about him as a person even? Because we have a lot of historical evidence on him. All these things actually came through thousands of years of Christian thought often. And there are always dissenting views. It's never been like, this is just how it is. Well, how did it come to be? what's what's yeah. actually going on it, that was just never ever presented as something that you could even think about mm-hmm. and that as a historian that really frustrates me and so yeah. kind of going into this season i already knew that to some degree mm-hmm. so whenever i hear anything i'm always like well okay but why do we think that yeah. <laughs> and that concept is something that i think deconstruction is going to force into the open what i mean is i think our churches and our Christian authorities are going to start being expected to give more of a basis historically, scientifically, logically for things instead of just preaching and saying, this is the clear word of God, you know? Anyway, back to systemizing judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I wanted to start with the question, who deserves hell in mm. Christianity? So predominantly in classical evangelical doctrine, Salvation can only come through faith in Jesus because we all deserve hell. The idea is that sin Mm -hmm. separates us from God. Hell is separation from God. Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of where the linchpin is. Now, there's different views on what this might be like. So many evangelical scholars would say that those who fail to hear the gospel through no fault of their own, will still be damned. And Mm -hmm. these, these people are called exclusivists or particularists. On the other end of the spectrum, you have inclusivists who will point to Old Testament saints that are listed, like in Hebrews 11. We read a whole line of what are considered to be godly people who never actually knew Jesus, could never say, you know, the sinner's prayer, and they are counted among the redeemed. So Mm -hmm. that's, you know, there's some tension there between how people read those passages. Um but there's different passages like that, and you can you can take them different places when you're trying to systemize your idea of what's going on. Mm-hmm. There's problems that people have to deal with, like if an infant dies, mm-hmm. are they considered sinful by definition because they truly have not even committed 
a wrong. And so you get into this idea of original sin. And so some people would say they are still sinful. They Mm -hmm. may or may not make it into heaven, (laughs) depending on your view, because they're inherently sinful. And of course, there's people who would argue that is not true. You cannot be counted guilty unless you have done something. Mm -hmm. And so there's just a lot of wiggle room with that. And I think really one of the big things that we struggle with as a Christian culture, and by we, I mean, especially evangelical, potentially even outside of that branch, is that we haven't really spoken on exactly what sin is. And I think this Mm -hmm. is one of the quote unquote curses and quote unquote blessings of how Jesus came onto the scene historically, because before that it was very clear from what I understand to the Jews, you know, we have this Mm -hmm. law Mm -hmm. and you break commands and you keep commands and it's pretty, it's truly eye for eye. Like it's pretty straightforward. It's very written, like it's written out very clearly. Yes. And judgment follows when you break a command. Here's what you can do to, you know, try and atone for it, etc. Mm-hmm. But then Jesus comes on the scene and now it's like, wait, you fulfilled the law? Wait, I thought this wasn't allowed, but you're saying it's okay to do this on the Sabbath? Is something changing or are you revealing the ultimate meaning of that? So throughout Christianity, there's so many different ways we understand sin. We understand what is law. We understand how to keep God's commands. You know, people try, Mm -hmm. different people think, okay, the Ten Commandments, that's what we are to keep. People think, Mm -hmm. no, 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 none of the Old Testament, you know, the the fruits of the Spirit, we need to to be judging sin by the result it produces. That's Mm -hmm. some theories out there. I've heard and so anyway sin I'm just putting this in there because before we get into Augustinian thought Arminian thought things like that I think a big blind spot of the church is how ununified Mm -hmm. um, we are on the topic of sin and I think that plays directly into our thoughts on hell so there's kind of this very obscure you know you do bad things you go to hell but it's like what are the bad things also, I wonder a little bit if that's partly where the original sin idea um, comes from, because it's kind of a blanket statement like, well, don't worry about it. We don't need to know exactly what sin is or, or <laughs> pin it down because we're all bad and deserve help. We're so, all bad. you know, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I speculate. I wonder if that's partly the Did confusion. Out, uh, I think that was something that was clarified by the, the idea of original sin is a Catholic idea. Mm-hmm. And I think. It may have come into play, I think you were saying, like, linked to the penal substitutionary argument, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure exactly how that came about, but I do believe that they're pretty intertwined. Yeah, I I could see that. Because, honestly, if you're going towards an infernalist view of hell, it makes a lot of sense for this to be part of it. That we are all originally sinners because of Adam and deserve hell. And so the free gift... Is really about avoiding that. <laughs> I don't know. It's it bothers me. I, I remember hearing someone say, um, "When it comes to hell, a lot of skeptics will say, how could God do that? How could God send us there or create the possibility?'" And this particular Christian apologist said, "To me, if there's a giant chasm and there's a bridge, I'm going to take the bridge and be grateful. I'm not going to blame the hand that's helping me." But the problem hmm. is. That hand is also the hand that supposedly made created the chasm. Hell. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That hand is the same hand that made the chasm and also created you unable 
to see the bridge to get across or yeah to see the bridge in some cases you so, know so in that analogy i see a lot of things wrong yeah <laughs> i get what you kind of get what he's saying but i mean actually no i mean i understand yeah. it but it has a lot of holes there are a lot of problems with it and <laughs> there's a lot of ways it's unconvincing to me but there's a lot i i know the arguments because i went to school for this i know the arguments yes the valid arguments like we talked about this last episode there are valid arguments for that view how -hmm. god is still good how we are still utterly sinful there are valid arguments i do not think they are sound Mm -hmm. if anyone needs to know those or would like to discuss them with me dm me but i it would just take all day Yeah. Through it. So all of that to say, let's get to Augustine finally. So here's his thoughts in a nutshell. All of us deserve hell. That is divine justice because we are sinful and sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. Some of us will be rescued. That's divine mercy, but not all will be rescued. So God does not love all the created persons equally. And I don't <laughs> think that's me saying it in a way like twisting his words if he was here. I think that's he would say well yes that's true he doesn't love us equally he may love us all but it's not equally Hmm. because different ones of us are chosen to be saved and different ones are chosen not to so he wrote the word concerning god who will have all men to be saved that's something that's in scripture does not mean that there is no one whose salvation god does not will But by all men, we are to understand the whole of mankind in every single group into which it can be divided. For from which of these groups doth not God will that some men from every nation should be saved through his only begotten son, our Lord. So I've actually heard this argued before, but the idea that all in this case doesn't mean literally all. It means all kinds or Hmm. from all nations. And that would be something to look into the word all and its usage in the Bible and elsewhere would be helpful in that Mm -hmm. but for the augustinian then the bottom line really is that even as our creator god owes us nothing in our present Mm -hmm. condition because thanks to original sin we come into this earthly life already deserving nothing but everlasting punishment and hell and there there are a lot of objections to this which is crazy to me because this is absolutely what i have been taught honestly until even a few years ago i remember having one professor in my undergrad who was a wild universalist. Yes, I remember this. And we both were like, well, <laughs> that's just we, wrong. <laughs> Jenny, we were, I forgot you were there in apologetics club. Uh, with yes. the, Like when he spoke, weren't you? I don't know. I was not as involved as you were, but I remember this is one of the professors that you had though, right? Yes. He was a music professor. <laughs> yes. I remember uh, you, like, we, like, you were just kind of, just, we were, I think we were just walking one day. I, I was outside. Like, I remember, like, just being kind of, like, shocked. Like, he believes that everyone is going to go to heaven. And we're like, that's crazy. He yeah, like, this is, is a like, pagan. I kind of, like, is he, <laughs> like, I was like, wow, he doesn't even get, like, he missed the whole part of Christianity. Like, he's missing yeah. a huge chunk. Is this can't even, even be right. a Christian? Someone has to suffer here. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being... It was it, it was strange. I, I didn't know how to view him exactly, but mm-hmm. um, but now you know I'm kind of like, like oh huh. I think I see a little more where you're coming from potentially. Um, yeah. Why did I bring him up? Oh, you were saying he was the first one to kind of introduce you to the idea oh, that a Christian could yes. think this way, and we both of us were just like, nah. Yeah, exactly. It was just really interesting because I thought that's kind of just heretical, straight up. Right. I I thought that was a newfangled thing, really. Yeah. And and it's just a very crazy new age learning. Yes, new agey. And it's kind of crazy to be hearing, oh no, not exactly. 
Um, but anyway, back to the Augustinian train of thought. There are plenty of uh, objections to it. Mm-hmm. And in our show notes, I'll have some more. But there's a, f- a couple I'll just bring up now. One proposal is that we get it all wrong when we think there's this like massive creator-creation divide. They would think of it more as a parent and a child. So God has freely accepted responsibility as the creator to meet our needs. And so that means he owes us forgiveness, as some people huh. would say. So in the same way that a human parent owes their children to forgive them when they make mistakes along the way of growing. So that's definitely, even as I read that, I'm like, ooh, I don't know about owes, but that's I don't know. That's confusing to me, but that's I think in, in the context of like eternal damnation, yeah. I, it makes sense to me in the sense that like my child I know is going to hit <laughs> their sibling probably yeah. today a few times. And <laughs> the idea being that can frustrate me and there may still be consequence for that, mm-hmm. but it's not some, it's not where I'm like, you cannot be part of this family anymore. Right. Yeah, like you're done. That's it. <laughs> because that is, you know, and so I don't know. That's an inter- I had not really heard this argument articulated. I do think a lot of people in deconstruction feel this deeply because I've heard of yeah. friends that leave the faith once they have children because the idea of original sin is so unnerving once they have a kid. I've heard more than one person say this, which is really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, Another argument against Augustine's proposal, um, which I think might be the biggest one, is really how can any sin that is finite by a finite being, especially committed in the context of ambiguity, ignorance, and illusion, because often we sin not knowing that what we're doing is wrong, how can that deserve an infinite penalty? How is that actually just? That's one of the big views. And so people will say, well, it's a holy God. So it's really about his worth, not about, you know, you. But where's the basis for that argument? Where's the basis that, you know, your punishment is dependent on the person you wronged instead of the inherent wrongness of what you did, which also takes into account the duration of how long you exist and and would say you don't deserve to be punished eternally for something you committed during a finite period of time. Anyway, you can get really in the weeds with <laughs> going back and forth between this kind of theology and logic and justice and everything. But I also just wanted to point out, I don't think a lot of us realize Calvinism, John Calvin and his theology, which also really draws upon election and predestination really does draw a lot from Augustine. So even within our own Calvinist traditions, I don't know how how many people know that or how many people just think, well, that's just what the Bible teaches. And I just wish that was more known by all, you know? Let's move away from Augustine for a second and go to the Arminian view. So this is the basic idea in the Arminian view that hell along with the self-imposed misery that comes with it, is essentially a freely embraced condition rather than something that's forcibly imposed upon someone. So the Calvinist would say this is not necessarily a biblical picture of God because it ties God's hands and it says God does not actually have the power to save anyone in the same way he does if he's predestined who will be saved and there's nothing you can do about it. Um... It, it definitely leaves power in the creature's will. And, and they just don't think that is what is happening in the Bible. 
and they don't think Christ came to save everyone, they, they read the text to say there are specific people Christ came to save. So it would seem to me that what you risk when you uh, are a Calvinist or someone of Augustinian thought is you risk, in my mind, God's goodness, God's actual fairness. You risk losing that. But then what you risk in Arminianism is God's power, God's sovereignty, and you risk that because you can't actually say, I know I'm saved. I won't lose my salvation. You know, it's up to the, to the person's choice. Anyways, it's just interesting to me because now recently exploring universalist thought, it does seem you can have free choice and God is still fair and equal. And I don't know, it's just a lot I've been exploring because it seems like something that was never presented to me when I was only told about Calvinism versus Arminianism. And I just think that's very unfair. It's a very valid argument. So getting back for a second to Arminian thought. We all, under this view, this Arminian view, carry the risk of choosing the ultimate tragedy, but it would be a choice. So even though the perfectly loving God would never reject anyone, sinners can reject God, and so they can freely separate themselves from the divine nature. Um, so it's just, it's interesting. And of course, the big question then is, but why suppose it even possible that a free creature would want to reject a good and loving God? And in our show notes, we have a few proposed theories on that. So I'm not going to get into that, but that is what I think is somewhat of a weakness of this argument. I think before really deconstructing hell recently, I would have leaned this way because sure. the free choice thing certainly seems more fair the, than, yeah, definitely. you know, the other option, you have no choice and it's still your fault. <laughs> yeah. So, you can tell I'm a little salty on that, but um, I don't know, but there's still some problems as well with this mm -hmm. now just because there's problems doesn't mean something can't be true it's just it, logically we have to kind of wrestle with how things are just and fair and um and how that looks thank you for listening along with us this week as we explored how people have systemized judgment how they've organized thought around hell i think this is so important for when we deconstruct the idea of hell in large part because many of us are taught that human beings intrinsically know they deserve eternal hell and that's just not true people don't know that not in the way that evangelicalism teaches us you know and so we have to wrestle with what that means now what does that mean about cosmic justice what does that mean about objective evil and i hope we've given you some things to think about and i hope we've shed some light on the journey sometimes it feels like we're asking more questions than giving answers but hopefully this is a jumping off point for where you can take your own study further we have some more resources for you in our show notes so be sure to check that out and stick around after the music to hear Jenny give us some actual quotes from the early church fathers on their specific positions on hell and divine judgment. Here are some quotes from the early church fathers. These first two quotes show that some of them held an eternal torment view of hell, starting with Tertullian. These have further set before us the proofs he has given us of his majesty and judgments by floods and fires, the rules appointed by him for securing his favor, as well as the retribution in store for the ignoring, forsaking, and keeping them, 
as being about at the end of all to adjudge his worshipers to everlasting life and the wicked to the doom of fire at once without ending and without break, raising up again all the dead from the beginning, reforming and renewing them with the object of awarding either recompense. The second church father I chose to represent infernalism is Hippolytus of Rome, and he said, Standing before Christ's judgment, all of them, men, angels, and demons, crying out in one voice shall say, Just is your judgment, and the righteousness of that cry will be apparent in the recompense made to each. To those who have done well, everlasting enjoyment shall be given, while to the lovers of evil shall be given eternal punishment. The unquenchable and unending fire awaits these latter, in a certain fiery worm which does not die, and which does not waste the body, but continually bursts forth from the body with unceasing pain. No sleep will give them rest, no night will soothe them, no death will deliver them from punishment, no appeal of interceding friends will profit them. The next two church followers I chose uh, to show their belief in annihilationism is Irenaeus of Gaul, and he said, And therefore, he who shall preserve the life bestowed upon him, and give thanks to him who imparted it, shall receive also length of days for ever and ever. But he who shall reject it, and prove himself ungrateful to his Maker, inasmuch as he has been created, and has not recognized him who bestowed the gift upon him, deprives himself of the privilege of continuance for ever and ever. And for this reason, the Lord declared to those who showed themselves ungrateful towards him, If ye had not been faithful in that which is little, who shall give you that which is great? Indicating that those who, in this brief temporal life, have shown themselves ungrateful to him who bestowed it, shall justly not receive from him length of days forever and ever. The second quote is from Athanasius, and he said, For transgression of the commandment was turning them back to their natural state. So that just as they have had their being out of nothing, so also, as might be expected, they might look for corruption into nothing in the course of time. For if, out of a formal normal state of non-existence, they were called into being by the presence and loving kindness of the word, it followed naturally that when men were bereft of the knowledge of God and were turned back to what was not, for what is evil is not, but what is good is, they should, since they derive their being from God, who is, be everlastingly bereft even of being, in other words, that they should be disintegrated and abide in death and corruption. The third stance of the early church fathers, universal restorationism, and the first quote I chose to represent that is from Clement of Alexandria, and he said, God's punishments are saving and disciplinary in Hades, leading to conversions, and choosing rather the repentance than the death of the sinner, and especially since souls, although darkened by passions, when released from their bodies, are able to perceive more clearly because of their being no longer obstructed by the paltry flesh. We can set no limits to the agency of the Redeemer to redeem. To rescue, to discipline is his work, and so he will continue to operate after this life. And lastly, I have a quote from Gregory of Nyssa, and he said, What, therefore, is the scope of Paul's argument in this place? Referencing 1 Corinthians 15.28 that the nature of evil at length be wholly exterminated and divine immortal goodness embrace within itself every rational creature, 
so that all who were made by God, not one shall be excluded from his kingdom. All the viciousness that like a corrupt matter is mingled in things shall be dissolved and consumed in the furnace of purgatorial fire, and everything that has its origin from God shall be restored to its pristine state of purity. If this episode was meaningful to you, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deconstructing the myth so that episodes like today's keep coming.